wish you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. A few weeks ago, we started a study of this one chapter. It's going to take us all the way up to Thanksgiving. There's some amazing teaching contained in these few verses. When I say amazing, I, that's really not even capturing it. There's life-changing teaching captured in the few verses of Romans chapter 12. When we started this, I didn't realize how slow we were going to be moving through it. And that's a, a different type of preaching for me. So hopefully you're blessed by it. I have been blessed by the study. In fact, I have been in a number of different places over the course of the past week that have really challenged my mind and challenged some things that I had known. So we've been going through the first verse. Today we're going to get into the second, and I think we'll probably move on after today, but I want us to spend some time there. Join me in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, there are at least three things in that second verse that should cause us to stop and wonder. Listen to it again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let's make our first stop. That happens when we read the, world, the word confirmed, formed. I'm going to get my tongue working at some point. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world. Now that really is a curious statement. Last week I said this, the world seeks to control our thinking. Jesus seeks to transform our thinking. When we use that word control, it's probably better applied to use the exact word that we find in Scripture. The world seeks to conform our thinking. They want to tell us exactly how we should think, how we should believe, and how we should view certain things. If you have watched the news or turned on the Internet, in the last few weeks, and you have watched any of the Judge Kavanaugh hearings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is little room for anyone to come to their own conclusions. There is instead a massive push to try to conform people to a certain way of thinking within this. Well, that's the pattern of the world. They try to conform everyone into a certain mold. They try to push us all into believing a certain thing, not trusting that we have the ability to arrive at conclusions on our own. And that's a God-given ability. So the world seeks to conform our thinking, while the Bible teaches that God wants to transform our thinking through the renewal of our minds. That's really very interesting teaching. That's what God wants to do. He wants to transform our thinking by renewing our minds, by changing our minds, by giving us a different way of approaching things. Now that word transform is equally curious because it is the exact same word that we find in this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now the word transfigured that we find in Matthew chapter 17 is the exact same word in the original language as transform in Romans chapter 12. So Paul is teaching us that we are to be transfigured, transformed or transfigured. Well, people have made a huge mistake of believing when they have studied Matthew chapter 17 that when Jesus was transfigured, he was reflecting the glory of God and he allowed Peter, James and John to see that. That's not true. That is a theological blunder, and no one should make it. When Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, he was not reflecting the glory of God. He was radiating the glory of God. And there is a total difference. What was inside him, the divinity that was inside his humanity, was shining forth. That was the transfiguration. Now, in order to understand that a little bit better, we also get the idea of metamorphosis from the word transfiguration. Now, we always use butterflies coming out of a cocoon to illustrate that. So if you need to picture that very thing happening, do that. When Jesus was transfigured, this metamorphosis was happening where his divinity was radiating out of his body. So the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 12, we're supposed to do the same thing. No longer conforming to the patterns of this world, we are to be transformed, transfigured. We are to experience a metamorphosis where the glory of the Lord that lives within us begins to radiate out. Did you catch that at the end of the Matthew 17 passage, Jesus would say to the disciples, I don't want you to tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. Well, the reason for that was after the resurrection, that type of power, resurrection power that we sang about just a few minutes ago became possible for every believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living within us gives us the ability to radiate the glory of the Lord because of the relationship that we have with Him. And when we are transformed by Him, that type of radiant glory becomes visible to everyone else. I love what John did with that command. He waited until the time was right. And then in his gospel, years after the resurrection, in the first chapter, 14th verse, he says this, and the word became flesh. That's Jesus. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That was John talking about the transfiguration. We have seen his glory, and his glory is full of grace and truth, and that's what we preach to you. That's what he was saying. But read between the lines, and you find John actually communicating this. As much as we saw Jesus change before our eyes, as a result of that, we have been changed. We have been transformed. We have been transfigured. And now the glory of the Lord radiates out of us. And Paul tells us where that whole process 
is supposed to begin. That's what is so intriguing about Romans chapter 12. He says that transformation begins in the renewal of your mind. That's where this starts. We always think it's in the renewal of our life or the renewal of our heart, but the Bible actually says that type of transformation, transfiguration, metamorphosis, the radiating of the glory of God begins in your mind. Now that's quite a complex idea because our mind, according to everybody, whether you're a scholar in this realm or not, our mind is contained within our brain. The brain has long been said or long been called the most complicated mechanism in the entire world, the most complex, the most complete mechanism in the entire world. It's fascinating to think about that when you realize that the brain is actually a three-pound part of your body. It only weighs three pounds. But in those three pounds, there are 12 billion, listen to that, 12 billion cells. You have 12 billion brain cells each one of them connected to 10,000 other cells. Now, here's some cool biblical math for you, or not biblical math, scientific math. Here you go. That means there are 120 trillion brain connections in your three-pound brain. Now, some of you may say, yeah, I I get that maybe I have a three-pound brain, but I've seen some people that have maybe a five-pound brain, and I've seen other people that are scratching to try to get to three. And so you might, you might wonder exactly how all that plays out. But as a whole, that's what we're talking about. A three-pound mechanism within you that controls everything. From the simple body functions of your heart beating to the most complex decisions that you will ever make in your life. All of that is coming out of your mind. All of that comes from this three-pound complex mechanism that God placed within us. And the Bible says that's where the transformation begins. That's where it all starts. We have to let our minds be renewed before our life can be renewed and before we can experience that transfiguration, the transformation, the metamorphosis. It all starts right here. There is no way that anybody in this room could ever argue that since the beginning of time, our minds have been under attack, and they have. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, when the Lord told Adam and Eve how to think so that they could be successful in life, Satan decided to mess that up, and he decided to get involved in their thinking processes. And that attack has continued since that moment all the way to today. Just listen to this in the book of 2 Corinthians. You don't have to turn with me. This is the Apostle Paul again writing about the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, the Jews. He says, since we have such a hope, we're very bold speaking about Christ. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their, listen, minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." Now, it's really cool to me that in this passage, Paul would talk about the Jews having their minds hardened so that they can't think their way unto Christ. 
But he says, because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, that is not true for us. And so what's happening is a transformation where we are moving from glory to glory. That's all part of the transfiguration process. We are radiating more and more and more of Jesus all the time because of the renewing of our mind. But the battle of the world says, we don't want that to happen. So let's keep them stuck right where we're at. Let's keep them stuck in a place where they can't grow even though this three-pound mechanism within your head controls every aspect of who you are. In order for us to let that renewal happen, we've got to figure out a few things. First and foremost, that there is a battle raging for our minds. And secondly, we have to figure out the parts of our minds that have to be transformed. I like the way Tim LaHaye sums all of this up. Take a look at this. We have little or no conscious control over many of these traits, meaning the things that make us who we are. And even today, scientists disagree over the extent to which we rule ourselves. Yet most experts insist that we can regulate far more mental activity than we realize. One thing is certain, what we choose to see and hear and how we think, our philosophy of life, are the most significant influences in our lives and they greatly affect all three major aspects of the mind, intellect, emotion, and will. There are three parts of the mind that everybody has to allow this renewal process to work in. Your intellect, your emotion, and your will. And once we understand that, the renewal process can really take off. Let's take that first part, the intellect. Now, for a lot of us, we would say that's the most complex part of our mind. The intellect is how smart we are, the knowledge that we we assimilate, the knowledge that we take within us. Our intellect is made up of our hardwiring, how you're put together, and then the teaching that you have set under from the time you were very small, beginning with your parents, your siblings, your aunts, your uncles, your extended family, until eventually you were sitting in a formal education process, and all the information that comes through that helps shape your intellect. Add to that the things that you see, the things that you hear, the things that you experience in life. All of that is a part of shaping your intellect. And it can become quite complex if we even stop to think about it. Part of the complexity would sound like this. Well, I have noticed that in gender-specific ways, a woman's brain, a woman's intellect is different than a man's intellect. Most people would say that that is true, and then they would try to describe it. This is possibly the best illustration that I have found for the truth of that statement. Here it is. A man's intellect is different than a woman's intellect. No question about it. Women tend to be a lot more complicated and a lot more complex than men are. Men say amen, would you? That's just it. That's the illustration of the whole thing. Yet when we get into our intellect and we start bringing all kinds of things together, recognizing that they shape us into who we are, and our brains begin to take on different knowledge and different experiences and put them all together to shape our smarts, if you will, it's pretty intriguing to see the way it works. Different advantages in life, different opportunities in life help shape that part of our brain. But that part tends to get controlled by the other two parts that LaHaye was talking about. Or at the very least, that part controls these parts. That's the complexity of the mind. The emotions would be the second part. People have wondered forever where the emotions are located within the body. 
more often than not, we think that they're in a little heart-shaped part of our chest. We say that our emotions are located in our hearts, but science has proven that to not be true. In fact, science knows that your emotions are governed by a part of your brain. This is the part right here. It's called the amygdala, as somebody came and told me after first service because I'm stumbling around trying to figure out how to pronounce that. The amygdala. Now here's the definition of it. It's a roughly almond-shaped mass of gray matter inside each cerebral hemisphere. It's involved with the experiencing of emotions. Our emotions determine our moods. They determine our feelings. But did you realize that your emotions also determine your actions? They really do. Now think about it this way as we illustrate it. If you wake up in the morning and you're feeling fairly lethargic or fairly, well, I don't even know what it is, down, depressed, however you want to put that, melancholy is another word for it, then you may not feel like doing anything all day long and you end up laying on the couch binge watching Netflix. That's all you do because your emotions have determined your action. But if you wake up in the morning feeling happy and excited, you may mow your yard, the neighbor's yard, paint their house, and come back after weeding their garden. Because you were that excited over the course of the day. You were that happy. Your emotions determine your actions. We can actually get into Scripture and see how that works. In fact, I was looking at different people throughout the Bible that would illustrate this, and I landed on Peter because Peter tends to be a very emotional individual. He can be way up here, and then he can come way down here. And I don't point fingers at him because a lot of us are just like that. I don't blame Peter for that. Peter's emotions determine his actions. Think about things like this. At one point when he was stuck in the middle of a storm and he needed no one more than Jesus, when he saw him in faith and trust, he got out of the boat and he actually walked on water. That's how powerful this was. But then fear overshadowed his faith and trust and he began to drown. He sank. That's what emotions do for us. When the emotion of fear overpowered faith and trust, he took his eyes off the Lord and he began to sink. There's a point in Peter's story where anger so overwhelmed him that he pulled a sword out of its sheath and cut off the ear of a man named Malchus who had come to arrest Jesus. In his anger, he forgot everything that the Lord had taught him up to that point. He was a little confused on some other teaching, and he decided to lash out on Jesus' behalf. Cut off the man's ear, and Jesus had to clean it all up. He reached down, grabbed the man's ear, put it on, and, and made everything better. Now, just Phil's personal opinion... I think Jesus probably put Malchus's ear on just a little bit crooked. And here's why. So that every time he looked in the mirror, he would remember Jesus. I just, it's just what I think. It's Phil's opinion. It's not found in the Bible. So don't go looking for it. I just think that's what happened. There is another point in Peter's story where the emotion of bravado overtook him. And he made vows to the Lord. And only hours later, a rooster reminded him of his failure. That's how emotion controls action. Now, at first, as I was putting that list together, I thought, shame on you, Peter. And about 20 seconds later, I thought, how dare I even begin to say that? Because I've been in the exact same boat. I've had the exact same things happen to me. There's been times where I needed to see Jesus more than anybody else. And when I did, I acted out of faith and out of trust. But then fear overwhelmed that and I began to sink. You may have been there as well might have even found yourself at a point of drowning, having to cry out to him again, Lord, save now. Pull me out of this. 
There have been other times that in anger, and I'm not proud of these moments in my life, I have lashed out. And as a result of that, there's been a huge mess that God has had to clean up, and I've had to trust his providence to do that. Maybe you've been there as well because the emotion of anger governed your action. And there have been times when I have made bold boast before the Lord only to have a rooster remind me of my failures. I don't like roosters. (laughs) Not at all. And neither did Peter. We have all fallen into those same traps. Our emotions govern our actions. And it's this little tiny place in your mind that governs all of those emotions. Yet if we will pay attention to Scripture, we will find a battery of places throughout the Bible that teach us how that can all be transformed. Let me show you some of them this morning. You don't have to turn with me. I'm going to go really fast. But if you can, please do. Here we go. The first place that we see this, this type of transformation happening, not the first place, just one of the places, first place on our list is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, starting in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now let me stop there for just a second. There's a huge mistake in modern Christianity that teaches that anger is a sin. No Christian should ever be angry. If you have really been filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll never be angry again. That's a bunch of baloney. It really is. And right here in Ephesians chapter 4, we find the Bible telling us, be angry. Anger is a God-given emotion. It is the very thing that fires off our fight-or-flight mechanism. God gave it to us, but here's what the Bible teaches about it. In your anger, do not sin. Now, there's the big part of that. Anger in and of itself is not a sin, but if we leave it unchecked, it will quickly become that. That's how ears get cut off. That's how Jesus has to clean up messes. So in your anger, do not sin. Verse 27 says, And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fit for the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's transformational. That's the transfiguration of radiating the glory of God. I'm getting my emotions in check so that I can show Jesus to other people. Now, there are other passages that help us see that too, like this in Philippians chapter 4, starting verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things so that you can do this. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we start to control our emotions, we can actually get a rope around anxiety. The things that keep us up at night, the things that we worry about. And we can begin to pray through those things in such a way that the peace of Christ can cover us. That is so simple that Peter would actually say it like this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, we always wrestle with understanding how that can happen. It sounds so simple. Cast all my cares on the Lord because he cares for me. Well, how do I do that? 
by realizing this truth found in the 147th Psalm, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So I can give all of my worries, all of my cares, all of my concerns to Jesus because he can heal them. He can take care of it and he invites me to give them to him. So that when the transformation is complete, this is what it looks like. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit. That's really the Bible's way, Paul's way. He writes the book of Galatians as well. Paul's way of saying, be transformed, be transfigured, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now here's what scripture is teaching us. If we will allow that transformation to happen, all the things of the flesh begin to fall away. The emotions of the flesh, the emotions that drive us into the actions of the flesh, they begin to fall away and they are replaced with the fruits of the spirit. And the emotions that lead us to pick those fruits and apply them in our lives. If our emotions can come under the transformation of Christ along with our intellect, unbelievable things happen. We become new people, radiating the glory of the Lord. And that's our goal. In transfiguration and transformation, that's our goal. And we have resurrection power that makes that possible. But that resurrection power, that desire, that goal, that reality has to battle against the third part of our mind. And that battle is huge. It is huge. That's with our will. The will is still a curiosity to scientists. They don't know where it's found. They don't know where it's contained. They believe that it is in our brain. They believe that it is in our minds because it is so closely connected to our intellect and to our emotions. But they don't know that for sure. What they know about our will is that it is made up of many of those same things. It's made up of our hardwiring, the way we're put together. It's made up of the teaching, the knowledge that we have accumulated. It's made up from the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that we experience, life experience. A lot of our will is made up by choice. We hear about strong-willed people and we hear about weak-willed people. And the question is always, how do you become strong-willed or why is a person weak-willed? Well, they're still trying to figure all of that out. Most of it goes back to that hard wiring. You're just wired that way. And so for some people, the transformation of their will is huge. It is huge. It leads to a stubbornness that keeps them on a track even when they know it is destructive. It leads to a stubbornness that will keep them on a track that even leads them away from Christ. The will is this thing that takes over when there's nothing else left. Yet interestingly enough, psychologists, psychiatrists, 
People that have studied this for years and years and years will say that if there is a conflict between your emotion and your will, your emotions will almost always win. Now think about that in your life. You may have said, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, but I want to do something contrary to that. Because I want to, because my emotions are driving it, even when I know I shouldn't, even when I know it is destructive, even when I know it is bad, the want to will overpower the will. Anybody else ever been in that situation? Thanks for your honesty. Most of us have. We've been in a place where emotion has governed will. And it might be that it is completely illogical and completely off the page. You know that if you continue on this path, you're going to blow everything up. But still you do it because you want to, because it seems appealing. And emotion tends to take us into what seems appealing in that particular moment. So when we are transforming our minds through the renewal of our minds, our will has to be renewed. And if it isn't, it can lead to some catastrophic results like this. I like the way David Noble sums this up. The importance of the will should never be underestimated. A man's life and eternal condition hang on it. Now, I could illustrate that for you in a number of different ways with very real personal illustrations. I have seen people, I have presided over their funerals of folks who have said, I have lived my life without Christ, I will die without him. That's a statement of the will. I have presided over other funerals where people have been presented with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to allow their mind to be transformed and renewed by the things of Jesus, and they have purposefully chosen to ignore that. And their will has taken them to the grave, and I would offer to you straight to hell because their will could not be changed. And as a result of that, they made an eternal decision that can't be reversed. It can't be changed. That's the struggle of the will. Now flip that nickel over and I've seen other people, and these are some of my favorite stories, that have stayed alive based solely on their will when their body has stopped all function and they are living solely by willpower that have remained alive unto Christ. And things have been changed in the, the last moments of their life. I love those stories. I love those stories. Deanie and I in our What We Believe class actually share a parable that Jesus taught about people that become Christians very early in their life. This is a paraphrased application of it. They become Christians very early on in their lives and people that become Christians at the very end of their life receiving the exact same reward, which is the welcome open arms of the Lord when he says, enter your rest. And Deanie and I are both people that became Christians early on in life, probably before we really even remember we started on that path. And we can celebrate with those people at the very end of their life in huge ways. I got no problem sharing that reward with people that will wait all the way through to the end and then give their lives to Christ. How cool is that? Brian Stewart would tell one of his favorite moments was with your father making that very decision. And what a cool moment that was. And I can look around this room, see a number of people that have experienced the same thing because they battled with their will unto salvation. And that battle can happen in the intellect and it can happen in the emotions. 
One of my other favorite stories, it's hard for a lot of people to embrace because they think that when a preacher puts something out, they just want people to respond right now to it. Just respond because I put truth before you. Well, one of my favorite things is for people to say, I got to think about that. I got to let that soak in. I got to do a little more study on that. Well, I want you to. Just don't study too long because you don't know when that clock runs out. So that can be some of the struggle of it. And then the emotions come in and the will comes in. So if we're not careful, as David Noble would say, we could end up, because of our will, making a catastrophic choice. Yet if we will allow that to be renewed within us, pretty cool things can happen. Amazingly cool things can happen. I just read a story this past week that really illustrates this beautifully. A man who had spent his life studying science was teaching it at the university level. He was a PhD, had many other degrees that went with that. Finally decided that he needed to give his life to the Lord. He had been bombarded by his wife and other loved ones with the information of the gospel for years and years and years and years. But his will kept him distant. And finally he surrendered. And this was his statement just a couple of months after that point of conversion. He said, now remember, this is a very learned man, highly educated man, He said, I had no idea how dumb I was. That's exactly what he said. And then he goes on to say, the last few months have been the the period of time of the greatest of learning in all of my days because I finally surrendered to the Lord and now I am learning more and more and more and more and answers are coming together for me and I am putting together things that I have been curious about forever because his will finally surrendered. Well, when we go back into scripture, we find other people that battle with their will. Just like we found Peter, we can find people that have this struggle and study them out. Paul, the guy who would write about the renewal of our mind and the transformation that follows, the transfiguration, the metamorphosis that follows, that very guy is probably the greatest study we have in all of the Bible of the battle over will. Because you see, when we first meet him in Acts chapter 7, he isn't a believer. When we first meet him in Acts chapter 7, he is actually an enemy of the gospel. So much so that he was present when Stephen was being stoned. And the Bible says he was stoned under Paul's authority as Paul held the coats of those who were chunking the rocks at Stephen. He was given his blessing. Just two chapters later, though, Paul would have his will completely broken when the Lord struck him blind and put him on his knees on his way to Damascus and revealed himself to him. And in that moment, he yielded his will and became a believer of Jesus Christ. And then everything started to fall into place for him. He became a zealous preacher from that point forward, so much so that there was actually a time when the apostles had to get him out of Jerusalem under the cover of darkness because he was blowing the church up. So they said, you need, to, you need to leave. We'll just get you. You go preach somewhere else. We'll do what we're doing. And they got him out under the cover of darkness because he was that zealous about what he was doing. That same guy, after his will had been changed, would write things like this. And it's really good. Speaking of Jesus, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That same guy would say to Timothy, his son in the faith, words like this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 22. 
So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's the cool part about all of that. When we met Paul in Acts chapter 7, he was anything but the kind, compassionate man who just wrote in the last letter that he would ever write to Timothy, don't, don't get involved in foolish arguments. Don't get involved in those types of quarrels. Don't let people suck you in. You just be kind to everybody. Well, he didn't start that way. How did he end that way? Through transformation. His will changed. He was transfigured, radiating the glory of Christ. In the process, though, that same guy would write words like this. This is found in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Back at verse 18, he says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody ever felt that way? I have. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability. I, I have the want to, but there is something that stands between the want to and the ability. Do you know what that is? It's your will. It's in your mind. And until that is transformed, you will continue to struggle with it. So the right question is, preacher, how do I deal with that? I'm going to give you the right answer, and then we're going to close. It's by following Jesus' example and paying attention to his words. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, getting ready to head into Jerusalem, where he would, in just a matter of hours, be crucified, Jesus was praying in his humanity. Now, don't ever forget that Jesus was both God and man. His humanity and his divinity sometimes had to challenge one another. This was one of those times. He was praying in his humanity. And I want you to listen to the prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's a prayer of humanity. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was the prayer of divinity. In just one short prayer, there's both. And if we want our will to be transformed and our emotions to be transformed and our intellect to be transformed, that we might radiate the glory of God, becoming the person that he wants us to be, no longer conforming to the patterns of this world, if we want to discover his good, pleasing, perfect will, then we pray like that. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. When we know that we are in that moment where we know what we should do, but we don't have the ability to do it, we pray not my will, but yours be done. Lord, you give me what it takes to overcome me that I might be who you want me to be. And the Lord does. He does. That's part of the resurrection power 
that exist in us, living on the inside, the song says, until it comes out.